All right, by color, by size, here we go. What do we call this color? It's a light gray with a <laughs> tinge of purple. Okay, is that before the No, that's the after skin the, tone? the nude. Thank God you're here, Alex. You're gonna go home and color coordinate your closet now? Not a chance. All right, how are we doing here? Where's medium? This is medium. I thought this was small. That's large, that's small. Oh, rats. Come on, Alex. I also had like started work every day at six this week and I'm running on very low sleep. So to be impromptu told we're doing a podcast, I don't know if that I'm being my most eloquent today. self right now. I have not set the bar high for eloquence, so I wouldn't worry about that. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm your host, Pete Nordstrom, and yes, I'm actually one of those Nordstroms. And in addition to being a podcast host, I'm also the president of Nordstrom. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, you're going to meet all of the acting Nordstrom family members that currently work here starting with my brother, Eric, CEO, my cousin, Jamie, president of stores, and finally, my niece, Alex Nordstrom, who is the lone fifth-generation member of the Nordstrom family, still working at the company. I really love that Uncle Pete's like, so casually, we're just going to film a podcast. Surprise! You'll also get to hear from a longtime employee as he shares one of our favorite customer service stories. It all started with one of our loss prevention agents, and he notices a customer on her hands and knees. And the first thing he's thinking is like, okay, what is this lady doing? kick us off, I sat down with my brother Eric and cousin Jamie to give you some insight into what it's like being a Nordstrom working in the family business. You may not realize it, but this is a public company run by a board of directors, but when you share a name with such a large organization, it's bound to have an impact on both your personal life and interactions at work. We discuss some of the assumptions that people make about us, lessons passed down through the generations, and expose one of the stockroom's longest running pranks. We also talk about all of the many political and social challenges of running a business in 2022. So come on in, we're glad you're here. All right. What could go wrong? <laughs> well, just another Wednesday afternoon in Pete's office. We do this all the time. <laughs> you're gonna have to put down the phone, E. You're gonna, we're gonna need your rapt come on, attention. Focus. I'm in. Okay. It's fun for me to be able to talk with my brother, my cousin, who I talk with all the time anyway, but uh, not like this, not in the form of a podcast. You know, we're all here, part of the executive team. Brother Eric's the CEO. I'm the president. Jamie is president of stores. And we're a group of people on the executive team that work together on all kinds of things. But we're all obviously also bound by the fact that we're fourth generation Norsham family members. And we are also the only fourth generation members still left. I mean, the third generation doesn't work here anymore. We have far more relatives named Norsham that don't work here than do. So I don't know what that makes us as the last guy standing or something. But <laughs> here we are and we do this job and we've got all these shared experiences and stuff. And if you think about 
all the things that have happened societally and how it's impacted our business. I mean, I want to start there. So we, in the last few years, have had this become a thing. It wasn't really a thing years ago, but now stuff happens out there in culture and society, and it has this big knock-on effect of work. So I'm just curious of what your guys' take is. Jamie, what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, going back the last four years, it really started with the Ivanka Trump shoe thing uh, that we became this object for people to uh, express their opinions and and political beliefs and whatever. And and we kind of got thrust in the middle of a lot of things. And then, you know, the last couple of years with a lot of social justice issues, we've on one hand, we have 70,000 employees. They have strong opinions about these subjects. Uh, We're trying to navigate that. We're trying to be good leaders in our communities, good leaders for our teams. And then we've got customers who have all sorts of different opinions about these things. And so we're trying to navigate that. And at the same time, our stores are getting looted because of mostly opportunistic criminals taking advantage of the social unrest that's happening across town. And we're having to explain our position on these subjects None of us have any experience doing this. Yeah, you know, it's amazing because I know you guys probably have a similar view, but as we grew up in this thing, the whole thing was we respect all our customers. And to the extent they have different opinions or anything means we can't have an opinion about anything that feels personal or political or whatever. And so we were totally Switzerland, right? I mean, we would never have any kind of opinion about stuff like that. But then we've been in this position where, I mean, you got to stand up for something, And we can't have a personal connection with customers or employees if we don't have some authentic set of core beliefs and values in that we've had to, to your point, Jamie, we've actually actually had to go there when we don't really have any experience in that. I know, E, is that how you see it too? Yeah, I think there's, you know, looking back those days where not only were we raised that the role of a retailer, you want to serve everyone. So you you don't take positions, anything that's controversial. But the complexity of the times we're in demand that businesses and kind of everyone have a position and be part of the solution. Now, our country seems to have split in two completely different camps of what the solutions are. You know, to James' comment on the looting, uh, our Walnut Creek store got looted. And, you know, Pete, I know you've had some customer emails. I'm sure you have Jamie too. But I'm just looking at like two of the ones that I I save just because they're they're so striking. And so the first one says, "So these are these are emails from customers. These are customer emails. I'm not sure if they're customers. <laughs> they're people that for don't people. work here. Yes. It says, how is that equity working out for you? You put your employees in so much danger. Shame on you. And then the next one, hey boys, how's that woke shit working out for you? I'd say not too good in Walnut Creek, Mexifornia. Uh, what do they call it? Mexifornia. Mexifornia. So, uh, it, you know, do we get spun up on those comments? Not too much, but it is reflective of just how divisive things are. And uh, I, I think it's actually very positive in our country that that businesses and leaders are expected to have a view and, and stand up for what's right or wrong. And exactly when we choose to do that is challenging. But we've, as you guys know, our, our clearest view has always been in listening to our people. And to be an employer that people are proud to be with is, is always kind of guided us. And I certainly wouldn't say we have the rule book all figured out of when to insert ourselves, but our folks are pretty clear of 
type of employer they want to work for. And, you know, we want to be that. We want to be a company that, you know, people are telling their friends and family, this is where I work. I work at Nordstrom. That is something they, they say with pride. And that there's a lot of good in that. And business is being held to that standard. But uh, it's also so divisive. Yeah. So I don't know, Jamie, if I told you this, but I got a call from a guy and he goes, I'm just so mad about what's happened at your Walnut Creek store with all these people busting and looting it and the way you guys are leading and what you're doing. And, you know, it's horrible, the peril that you're putting your people in and, you know, you, you need to do something. And and I kind of lost it. I said, well, wait, you're, are you implying that we somehow deserve this or we've done something wrong? And he goes, well, you you guys don't stand up and come out against this in you know, the way the media portrays things and the way the politicians and I mean, he started going deep on all this stuff. I said, yeah, you know, we're just retailers here, I, you know, but I said, your assumption that we don't care, aren't doing anything about it is just wrong. So, I mean, Jamie, I know you get a ton of that stuff, too, but I had to kind of talk this guy off the ledge. I said, look at I mean, whatever beef you have with the media or with politicians <laughs> is not about us. So maybe you talk a little bit about the genesis of what happened there. You know, and you went and visited our team down in Walnut Creek after that happened and kind of what you've learned. Yeah. Well, what happened was we had 80 people show up right before closing. It's like 845 at night, 25 cars. They all pull up and they bum rush the store. Uh, I watched the videos and these were mostly teenagers. They all grabbed the first thing they saw and then ran back out. Most of them were in the store for less than 15 seconds. So no one was hurt or? Well, a couple of our loss prevention guys tried to slow them, a couple of them down and they got roughed up a little bit. Very minor, you know, I think one of them might have got slapped in the face or something. But like uh, no weapons or No, stuff no like weapons. That. And, I, you know, I, look, I'm not a law enforcement expert or anything, <laughs> but I'm watching these, these videos. These look like kids doing this for a thrill. Now, there's a whole bunch of this stuff going on and there is an organized retail crime thing that's happening where you have people that are organizing these events. Uh, and they're kind of grab and run type Yeah, they're grab and runs and, and maybe... Of those 80 people, there were three or four pros in there. And we've seen but, that. But it's not about some societal protests. No, it's absolutely just not. It's, it's stealing. Well, actually, what happened was the Rittenhouse verdict had come yeah. out and there was uh, planned protests in San Francisco. And so San Francisco loaded up with police. They were you know, closing down the streets. So all the police were focused on San Francisco. So where do you go if you want to do a grabber run? You go to Walnut Creek. You go out to the suburbs. You go to the suburbs. And, and we've seen this uh, multiple times. And so we're trying to play cops and robbers a little bit, trying to get ahead of what's going on here. All retailers are a bit in the same boat. Uh, we're a bit of a soft target because we've tried to make our stores uh, super welcoming. We don't lock everything down. They're brightly lit. We have lots of great entrances. Did you notice on that Nordstrom Friends thread that runs through Facebook that someone suggested that we shouldn't have windows in our stores and we should hire armed security people, yeah. which to your point, Thanks. does not make for the most welcoming yeah. or friendly shopping environment. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I remember a year ago when we were having a lot of these issues after the George Floyd verdict and there was a big presidential race. There was a lot of just uh, uneasiness. There was a really scary time in the country. And I was asking your dad one day, you know, the 60s were sounded like they were pretty crazy, too. There was a lot of stuff going on, civil rights. Uh, the country was you know, kind of in flames. You know, that's 
my perception of watching the documentaries. <laughs> and so I asked you, him. You were too young I, to I, know. I missed that. You missed uh, it. And I said, you know, how, how did you guys deal with that? Because they were running, you yeah. know, a, a retail business during that time. And they said it never impacted them. It, th there was stuff going on. They'd read about stuff in the paper, see something on the news, but it never came in the store. So they never had any like political no, fires to put out. No, or... like you know, once in a while somebody would come in and make an issue, and they, you know, the shoe salesman would rough them up and get them right back on the street. <laughs> uh, but it, they never had to engage. They never had to take a stance, and so. You know, I was asking them, you know, what do you guys think we should do? And they're like, we we have no experience in this. This has never happened before. So these issues that, that we're dealing with the last few years, at least for this company, but I think also for retail in general, just totally unprecedented having to, to navigate these things. And again, it's this really difficult position where, you know, our stores are getting robbed. There's a lot of people that are saying it's a direct result of either our position on different social justice issues or because of social justice issues. And they're really not, they're, they're not connected, but we're having to find ourselves explaining ourselves to everybody and defending what we've been doing. And to your point, I just keep telling people, look, we're trying to sell shoes. Uh, give us a break here. Yeah. We're trying to run a good business where we employ a lot of people. We give people great opportunities. We make customers happy. We're a good member of the community. And I think we have a great story to tell there, and we've got a long track record. Uh, but it seems like we're getting hit on all sides. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me, because the first experience, the one that really stands out, and you mentioned it, was that Ivanka Trump thing. And I'm a little reticent to even bring it up just because it's like, oh, my God, you can't ever talk about it, because that'll incite <laughs> a bunch of rancor out there in our society. But... I want to talk about that really quickly because I have such vivid memory of sitting here in this office doing whatever the heck I was doing is in the morning. And you came walking down the hall and said, did you see where President Trump just tweeted about Nordstrom? I'm like, what? <laughs> so you remember that? I saw in the elevator on my way up and I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> and you were, I think you were already here. And I, yeah. Well, yeah, my first reaction was, well, that's kind of funny. But within about five minutes, it became like a, a firestorm of customer yeah. discontent. And we became this vehicle for people to express themselves about really a, what they believed to be a political issue. Because you know, Trump tweeted that we were treated as, what do you say? We treated his daughter poorly? Yes. My daughter's so great and Nordstrom's treated her poorly. And you know, Something and like so that. Ivanka, I mean, I know her and I'd been around her quite a few times. I had lunch with her and she was really nice and she had a, a successful business that we participated in. But when her dad ran for president, all of a sudden that brand that we carried here, we carried shoes and some dresses and what have you. It was so polarizing. And at least for us, I mean, the business went right down the tubes quickly and it was bad. I mean, but, we couldn't sell her stuff. But at remember, all. it was also her, her, her kind of brand aesthetic was much more dressed up and yes. kind of formal. And at the time, the more casual work environment was really taken off. And so, yeah, it might have been circumstances, yeah, right? Or just, coincidentally, just, it was the, happening. It, most of it, I, I think, was just people weren't looking for that type of product. They were wearing jeans to the office. They weren't looking for that that really dressed up, almost kind of formal career wear. That yeah. That's what her brand was. Yeah. And it just wasn't selling. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it was like, People are mad at us, like, how could you treat the president's daughter this way? And she's wonderful. And you must have some political agenda why you would not be, you know, because what would happen basically, we said, we're not going to carry this brand anymore. 
And the tipping point for me, we had some buyers come back from market and said, do we have to buy this anymore? And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, it's just not really performing. We think we have better choices, but I know it's such a loaded thing because their dad's running for president. And I'm afraid that if we don't buy it, it's really going to make some people mad. And I said, look, it, this is a business decision. If it's not selling, we have to make these decisions all the time. We are not obligated to buy anything unless we think it's going to work for our business, work for our customers. And so they said, well, we're, gonna not, we're not going to buy it. So then I said, well, I'm going to have to call Ivanka and tell her this. Because, again, I knew her. We had this growing business. And so I called her and talked to her. And and she was polite on the phone. She obviously didn't want us to stop carrying her brand. But I said, look, I mean, this is not a personal thing. And and maybe sometime in the future, things could change and we'll be open to consider it again. But for right now, we're just not going to buy it. And I remember the one thing she said to me, she goes, you're going to regret this. And I I just kind of let that comment go. But sure enough... And we got, I don't know, thousands of letters and emails and threats. Thousands and and thousands. And, you know, it got to the point that at least for me, I felt like I had to do something to protect my family. So we literally hired off-duty police to camp out our house overnight in the driveway for about a week. It was scary and it was bad. Yeah, I I remember it because, you know, you had little kids at home. It was so surreal. And, you know, you sit here now and it's like, well, yeah, it's the country's divisive. And with social media, people get fired up and, and the president tweets. But at the time, all that was just completely brand new right. and completely unheard of and that we were part of it. Yeah. Um, it's like, how did we get in the middle of this? <laughs> it may just thrust into, you know, the headlines for across the country is of this controversy. Now, you sit here now, it's like, well, President Trump tweets about a different person, a different company every 15 minutes. So it's, it, no one remembers, it's not a big deal now. But at the time, you didn't have that yeah, track record. Yeah, it went record. from being kind of a charming like, wow. kind of, wow, this is funny, to like, oh my God, this is the worst. I remember, uh, you know, we were all dealing with, you know, we were getting thousands of emails and phone calls, phones ringing off the hook uh, for days and weeks. Yeah, you know, and, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but what I don't think what people recognize perhaps is that we answer our own phone. We respond to all these emails, stuff's coming to us. Well, I mean, I had... I don't know, a thousand of them? I don't know and, what I had. And, How many and you guys you, must and have you the know same? who was religious about answering his own phone was Blake. It was Blake, yeah. So my office is next to him. And after about the first 48 hours, he was starting to lose it because he was answering every one of these calls. He was, and you know, he would listen to these. And this, these people, a lot of these people are calling us, let's face it, these were, these are, you know, wackos. Yeah. Uh, and Blake would have these conversations with them. And you can only do that for so long before. You start to lose it a little bit. So I went to his assistant. I said, give me all the letters, everything that's, everything that's addressed to Blake, and he wrote all the phone calls to me. So I, oh. so I, <laughs> I took it all for the next week. And, you know, there was, I don't, like, I think there, I don't think I slept a couple nights. I mean, it, it was hundreds. Thousands. Yeah, it was thousands. Thousands. Yeah. And I felt like I was doing the company a bit of a service by freeing Blake because Blake would do nothing else but answer those calls. (laughs) Right. You know, I think the three of us are a little better about filtering some of that stuff, you know, using an assistant to, you know, make sure I'm getting the right things. Blake would not filter anything. Yeah. You know, I I took the tack that maybe it wasn't the most practical one in in hindsight, but I was going to explain to people exactly what happened and see if I could change their mind. And I learned in most cases, you're not changing anyone's mind. That They're not calling to have a rational discussion about something and try to get the facts. They want to vent and take it out on you 
you know, based on a whole host of other agendas. But, you know, my thing was, hey, look, I want to explain to you exactly what happened. And we, you know, we turn over at least 10% of our vendors a year a just for performance a reasons. thousand vendors yeah, every year. Just for, you know, they don't perform very well, whatever. And this is just one of them. And so there was no, you have to believe me, there was no political thing here. It was just, we're a business, we're a public company. Stuff wasn't performing well. We had better choices. Our buyers didn't want to buy it. And then they would say, well, I don't believe you. And that was kind of the okay. end of that conversation. Well, my memory, though, is the, yeah, the majority of people, you don't change your mind. But for me, there was enough people who said, well, yeah, okay, you shouldn't buy things that aren't selling just because it's the brand of the president's daughter. Because it's you guys, you know, we, all, we talk to customers every day. And, you know, you want to talk as real people. If you can get to that level of real human dialogue... It's good. You know, like humans don't expect each other to be perfect, so you can kind of work through and connect in that way. And there were some. There were there enough were some. in that. So coming to a place where, like, wow, these guys respond to all these emails and calls. I'm curious, you know, where you guys got that from? Where it's like, yeah, it's just that's just what we do. Well, I, I remember vividly when I was young, hearing my dad talk about answering your own phone. Like, you know, I heard that a lot. And I remember, you know, he told a story, he was talking with some retailer, maybe from a different country and they were doing a show and tell. And my dad said to him is, he goes, well, do you answer your own phone? He goes, well, of, co of course I don't answer my own phone. I've got a secretary who does that for me. He goes, well, if you're not answering your own phone, then none of the rest of the stuff that I just told you is gonna make any difference. Cause you gotta support your people and your customers. And if you don't make through your words and actions, the point that your customers and your frontline folks are the most important, then all the brilliant strategies aren't going to work. So that was drilled into me at a very early age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, our, our dad was also super clear on that. Of, I mean, it wasn't like a offhanded comment. It was very purposeful that you answer your own mail, you answer your own phone. And, and the story of our dad, there was a professor speaking to a big class so it was a business school and talking about business. Somehow they got talking about our company and, and the professor mentioned there of Bruce Nordstrom answers his own phone. So they had a break in our class and one of the students picked up the phone. I think it was a pay phone back in the day <laughs> and called my dad. And my dad answered. He goes, hello. And he goes, hello. Yes, hello. 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 <laughs> and went back and forth. Is this Bruce Nordstrom? Yes. And they explained, I'm in this class. I'm just calling to see if you answered your own phone. He's like, well, yes, of course I do. So the guy goes back into class and, and announces to the whole class, yeah, it's true. Bruce Nordstrom does answer his own phone. And that got picked up somewhere. Got, yeah, it, it always struck me as kind of weird that that was such like a novel idea yeah. when you tell people, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you talk to customers and you answer letters and emails and calls when it was just that's what you do. I mean, you're you're for a retailer. If, if you're not available, what good are you anyway? So. I don't know. It was just, it, it always struck me as strange that there was any other way to think about it. I, I love it when customers call and you answer, hello. In the last, you know, why did you answer your, your own phone? I said, well, I was standing here and it started ringing. <laughs> so I answered it. <laughs> I, I don't know any other way to answer that. I had one of those the other day, a woman, she called for me and she ended up getting me and I'm talking to her and she just let me have it. And she finally says, well, who are you? Like, what job do you have? And so I told her, I'm Pete Nordstrom, and I'm actually part of the family, and I'm president of the company. And 
And then she was like, oh, and then she had to end up talking to my assistant because we had to fall through on something for her. She goes, I feel so horribly. I would have not have talked to him like that if I knew it was Pete Nordstrom. And my response is that, you mean you would have talked that way with someone else? I mean, why would you talk that way to anybody? But that happens all the time. Like, I don't know if you got it too, where people don't believe you. Like, who are you? I need to talk to your boss. Yes. Like, well, I mean, you can talk to my dad, I guess, but he's not around here. So sorry. This is a favorite memory. I was a store manager in Minnesota at our, our Mall of America store and had a customer call and she was upset that she wasn't approached when she was in our cosmetics department. And so I'm apologizing. And I said, well, I'll, I'll help you. And what department <laughs> was this? This is cosmetics. Oh, good. She was, yeah, you? Expert. She was, what do you know about cosmetics? <laughs> I said, well, not much, but, I, but I'll try. So it didn't go well, the conversation. And about a week later, this customer had written to dad uh, complaining about the service she had in, uh, in my store. And then she's saying how she spoke to Eric Nordstrom, the store manager, and he was, uh, she used the word buffoon. He was an, an even bigger <laughs> buffoon than the others because he offered to help. And I'm sure he would just get in the way. <laughs> So, uh, you know, dad called out. I was like, yeah, so I told him what happened. So he responds because, of course, he responds to all of his letters. And I was not thrilled with his response because he didn't defend me at all. And then she he didn't defend you. No. no, she wrote back again, mad at him now. And then at the end said, is he related to you? <laughs> like, well, yes, of course. That's my dad. <laughs> Did she call him a buffoon? No, but she wasn't pleased. No, she stopped short of calling him a buffoon, but she wasn't thrilled so, with So, Jamie, response. did you ever have any of those where you had like a customer thing and like your dad got involved? No, not my dad. I, I did use my brother, Bill, oh, a, co did? a couple times. <laughs> uh, but mostly, you know, as a you know, shoe department manager, you know, it's your closing. It's, you know, it's a Tuesday night. There's a tough customer, maybe in a different department and would say, I want to see your store manager. And they would bring him to me. And then, and I were would, you manager in charge. No, I was just, I was the shoot department manager. Um, <laughs> and so I got to play that game a little bit, you know, actually one of the times I was kind of most pissed off. Uh, I was a store manager at Glendale in LA. Some Turkey had come in with some scam. They were trying to return something and we said, no, we're not going to take care of you. And about an hour later, I get a call from you really? going, hey, I just got a call from this customer. He said that you were mean to him. What the hell? And I'm like, <laughs> and, and I'm like Pete, give me a break. The guy's a turkey. And, and you're like, well, I don't know. It sounded like, you know, you didn't handle this one very well. And I'm like, okay. So I, you know. Just sorry about that. I don't remember that. Sorry about I that. Like, I should have been more supportive. Like, yeah. I was like, of all the people, you should know. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to blow the guy out. I had one when I was uh, the assistant manager in BP Shoes here in downtown Seattle. And someone came in. And they wanted to return a pair of LJ Simone Monaco's. Remember that? Mm -hmm. they, remember they, remember they wore a hole through them and, they, and they'd want to get like a different color. And I said, you know, we're not taking those back. I mean, that's just not reasonable. I mean, you just, these are a big hole in the bottom of these shoes. You said they didn't wear, well. I mean, you know. <laughs> It was the big mistake. I said, we'll take it back, but I'm never going to do this again. Oh, Which bad. is always the big mistake. Uh, it's like don't you do don't that. do yeah. it and then make them mad by telling them. Don't you give know, them their money back and make them mad. Yeah. So anyway, that's where I learned this lesson. So as I'm doing the return, she goes, I'm curious, what do you do with these shoes after they get returned? I said, I'll show you exactly what you do with them. And I pulled the garbage out from underneath the uh, register and threw them in the garbage. That didn't go over well with that customer. <laughs> she goes, I'd like to speak with your boss. Mm. I said, well, you can talk to my dad. If like, you're like, what do you mean your dad? And I go, here's my card. 
none of this was very smart in retrospect. <laughs> um, and so she said, okay. And she went and complained to my dad and um, he kind of let me have it. And that's where I got the lesson about, look, if you're going to say no, I can't yes. say no, but don't give them their money back. And then say, it's like, you're losing twice. What are you doing? You know, you're trying to make someone happy. He was um, supportive of me, but he kind of let me know that I did not handle that one particularly well. <laughs> All right, you guys, I want to shift a little bit. So I want to talk a little bit about growing up with the last name Nordstrom. That, that other story I would tell is when I was like in the second grade, you know, when our company was called Nordstrom Best, that was a long time ago in the 60s, we'd merged companies with Best Apparel. So for a period of time, it was Nordstrom Best. And I didn't like that I got teased in school because kids would call me Nordstrom Worst. Ugh. I don't know if that happened to you, but Ugh. that was kind of my growing up, the, the, the one burden of having the Nordstrom name. But I'm curious, like, you'll start with you. I mean, what was kind of your recollection of having this name and whatever connection there was to the business and stuff? It struck me right after college, you know, I went down to Southern California to be an assistant department manager in women's shoes at South Coast Plaza. I remember that the first day I was there, I was selling shoes and a handful of employees kind of wandered over. They were standing on the hard aisle staring at me <laughs> as I was selling shoes. So that was my first hint that it was a little different. I remember a, a few months I'd been down there and there was, you know, a group of employees, kind of the, I thought the cool people in the department, you know, they went out for a beer after work and they invited me along one time. Finally, I was like, God, yes, we went to Bennigan's, the Bennigan's in the parking lot. <laughs> like, oh, they invited me finally. And I, I was talking to who I thought was the coolest guy in the department. And I'm feeling like one of the gang. And he says, you know, when I heard a Nordstrom was coming down to work here. I thought you would be an asshole. <laughs> but you know what? You're not an asshole. Well, thank that you. That might have been the nicest compliment <laughs> you ever a, got. That's a nice compliment. So, Jamie, I mean, you're younger than Eric and I. Yes, I am. A, a solid decade plus younger. What was it like for you? It was a little different. I mean, Nordstrom was a bigger deal. You know, when I was... I think it was my senior high school is when we were on 60 Minutes. Oh, yeah. Uh, so by the time I was a senior, Nordstrom was becoming much more of a nationally recognized name. And in a lot of these towns, the biggest building in town, and certainly Bellevue, where I grew up, the biggest building in town was the Nordstrom department store. And I was kind of not embarrassed about it, but I did not want people to know my last name. I mean, just like in school, period, whatever. Period. I, and probably to this day, when, when I meet somebody at a party or whatever, I, I say, hi, I'm Jamie. Just instinctively, I, I not use my last name. And there was a lot of situations where I would get kind of irrationally nervous about uh, people knowing my last name. Because I didn't want people to, kind of to your point, Eric, I, you know, they come up with this thing in their mind about, well, he must be like this because, and this happens still today, it probably happens more now, is that, you know, you meet somebody and you're having a conversation with them and then all of a sudden they find out your last name is Nordstrom and things change. They start to get interested in a certain aspect of, of, of you or they want to talk about themselves in a different way. And, and it goes from having a normal conversation with somebody to something that's not that great. And so I always try to avoid those situations. Yeah. I mean, it's not a big deal now, but well, and you guys know this too. I, you know, I got three teenage daughters and, you know, we talk about it a lot because they, they, they're having all the same experiences that we've had growing up with a, with a name that people go, wait a second. Uh, does that mean that you're super rich? Do you own the company? Do you get to walk into the store and, and just take anything you want? And all these kind of 
they're ridiculous questions, but you have to put up with them a lot. I mean, you know, every time you use a credit card at the grocery store, you're liable to get the, oh, do you own Nordstrom's? Yeah. Are you part do of the family? Do you get that when you're going through um, TSA, like you show your ID? I get that all the time. Yeah. Like, oh, Nordstrom. Yeah. And I like that store and they start laughing. Are you part of that? And do you always say yes? I do. I tell the truth. I say no probably half the yeah, time. Yeah, I've seen you do that before. You've seen me do <laughs> I've it. seen you. But you're again, you're younger than us and you had older brothers. Like, how did that impact whether it was kind of your view of what was happening at Nordstrom? Because your brothers worked there, right? Like Eric and I, you know, about our age and teenagers. Yeah. I mean, so you had that pressure not only of just your parent working, but like your older siblings being there. Well, you know, I probably similar to you guys. I, th- there was no pressure to go work at Nordstrom in my house. In fact, there was just kind of no talk about it. It wasn't like, you know, my dad sat me down and said, okay, here's the plan for you. You know, it's funny. It's the same thing here. It was not just, talked about just, much at our place my, either. You know, my dad had a job. He went to work every morning and he came back. And some days he was in a good mood. Some days he was in a bad mood, depending on how business was going. But never once did he talk about me or my brothers working for the company. And I remember he said in a couple of interviews or maybe, you know, work, you know talking to the investors that like, we're not doing this for our kids, which is kind of a throwaway comment to most people. But if you're one of his kids, it's like, <laughs> well, what does that mean? Um, and so my brothers started working in the store, you know, and they're teenagers. And so when I became you know, 13, I wanted to be like my brothers and it seemed like a cool job. And so I asked my dad, can you get me a job at the store? He said, sure. And he would show a little bit of interest. You know, I'd come home from work after doing stock work and he'd say how to go and I'd answer. And then he didn't want to hear much more than that. Yeah. <laughs> some, you know, some quick snippet. And I actually, I think that was great because I've got the same thing with my kids where for the first time, one of my daughters last year said, I'd like a job at Nordstrom. And I said, great, I can get you a job at Nordstrom. You're going to have to work your ass off. Uh, people are going to expect you to be the first one there and the last one to leave and to be really good at whatever you're doing. And as long as you're willing to work in that environment, great. But I never told her once, you really need to go work at the store. Yeah, we, we had that experience. I and mean, at least speaking for myself, it was a job I could get mm-hmm. as a teenager. And my dad made it kind of clear we had to work. We couldn't do nothing during the summers. But it wasn't part of either some kind of obligation, right, as you were talking about, nor was it part of some grand plan about how we were getting this experience to shape us into executives at some point. It was it was a much more near-term thing, like, I want to be able to buy a car. I bet I got to make $2,000 this summer, whatever it was. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 I absolutely did not pressure us at all. I, as a matter of fact, I thought he was pretty open about some of the downsides of working with family. But the first order business was you turn 12 years old, you get a job. That's somewhere and between the sixth and seventh grade. <laughs> yes. yes. You got to have a job. And and it was a, a 12 years old. It's a long day. But uh, <laughs> for our work in the shoe department, you guys know, you know, it's the only department we have where the, you have a stock room. All the stock is in the back. And so you're there's a culture back there. Uh, and, you know, work with young people who come from all different backgrounds and experiences. They're, they were super interesting to me and uh, it was great to hang out with them. So I liked that aspect of it. But yeah, the main thing was get a job. So you must remember the time, E, where we were back in the stock room and we were trying to made up singles 
um, what that is, for people that don't understand this, is the believe it or not, we have shoes that are mismates and singles back there. So there's people walk around, maybe we sold shoes to in two different sizes or something. I don't know. But at some point along the way, we've, we get these singles. And so we would sit back there and try to mate them up. And at a certain point, as would typically happen between brothers who are 12 and 13 years old, we started throwing shoes at each other. <laughs> and I remember dad walked in when we were throwing shoes at each other and we got the big lecture like, these are like dollar bills. This is like money. You shouldn't treat things this way. This is merchandise. So that was another lesson. <laughs> Did you have any, JV, any experiences like that as like a stock guy via an endorsement have any colorful stories? Y- yes. Uh, most of which I probably wouldn't even be appropriate for this. But <laughs> Let's keep it appropriate. Y- y- you know, y- y- you learn a lot about life as a young man being in the stock room. I mean, because you-, you do have... A lot of the shoe sales people are in, in their you know twenties, but then you, you have the old guys, you yeah, have the fifty yeah. year olds back there, and they're talking about what's going on in their life, and you can hear everything, and so you'd be back there, you know, shifting a wall, and these guys are having conversations about their wives or you know what's what's going on, and, and you're thirteen years old, you're like these, these are new concepts um, <laughs> to a young man, and it was a lot of fun, uh, you know, the, probably the the best one that gets, story gets told a lot is. I was uh, I was the BP shoe stock guy in Bellevue. I think I was 14, and I were, and it's getting ready for anniversary, and so we're bringing in all the anniversary goods, and we're out of room. And I'm the stock guy. I think I know where this story is go, going. And, and, I, and every day, another pallet of, of shoes come up, and finally I go, that's it. We're out of room. Stop ordering more shoes. <laughs> uh, and they go, you know what? We need the wall stretcher, yes. and the wall is what we call the the the, the shelves in, in the in the stock room. And I go, well, what's a wall stretcher? And he goes, well, it makes more room for the shoes. And I go, well, what is it? Uh, <laughs> and he goes, well, you'll see. Uh, but you know, we loaned it to uh, Pennies uh, last week, so you got to go down and get get it. So from you them. walked down the mall to JC so Pennies. I walked down the mall. And I go to the shoe department. I'm like, I'm here. I'm I'm from Nordstrom. I'm here to get our wall stretcher back. And the guy, and the guy goes, oh god, we just uh, loaned it to Kinney's Shoes. So I go to Kenny's shoes and and I go in there. I go. I'm from Nordstrom. We're here to get our Wall Stretcher back. Penny says that. Oh, we just loaned it to the Bon Marche or whatever. So I go and then as I'm walking to like the fourth store, I finally realize, uh, and I come back in and the entire shoe department is laughing their ass off. That is the old shoe thing, the Wall Stretcher, and many of stock person has been sent on that. Yes. I remember that wall stretcher thing, but I don't think I ever got sent on that. I didn't get, I think we knew about it somehow. Did we know Blake about it? may have gotten it. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. I think, yeah. I, I think I sent people out on the wall stretcher mission a couple times well, as a manager. You, I think you, you had to do it to a stock person who was so frustrated because there's no more room. Like, I can't shift anything <laughs> around anymore. So you're just at your wit's end. And so... I really want to know what the wall stretcher was. Like, what kind of, what did it look like? It, what, you know was, what's amazing <laughs> about that is that this is a total shared experience with anyone who sold shoes and that the fact that you went to these different stores, they knew that their responsibility was to keep it going, yes. keep the story going. Because we would have people come to us, right? Like, I'm, I've been sent from Macy's for the wall stretcher. And like, oh, yeah, we just loaned it out. God, yeah, it's you like just shoe missed dog it. hazing. You just missed it's it. Like it's your initiation. <laughs> So it does all come around at a certain point when you're connected to the business this way and you're able to actually be of service to a customer and help actually solve a problem. And not because, you know, we're just delegating it off to someone else, but we're in a position where you can do that. And I, I don't know, that that's never really left me. And I've, you know, it was satisfying when I was young and being able to do that. Now, we don't get those opportunities as much, but 
you get a chance to talk to customers and, and certainly with employees. And I think in a way that, I don't know, just feels like it's adding value. And to me, that's really satisfying. So, Jamie, I don't know if you have a specific one that stands out. Well, for you? I'd say something our dads talked a lot about is the value of our reputation. And to be honest with you, though, what gives me the most satisfaction is more the opportunities that we've given that this company has given people to grow their careers and, and not because they had a fancy college degree or they, they, they came to this company with some you know, skill set that you know, set them apart. This company creates this platform that if you're willing to work hard and be a really strong leader, which means you got to be vulnerable, you got to listen to people, you got to create an environment where good people want to work for you, uh, you're going to be really successful. And so the amount of, you know, just in our time here, the amount of people that started as a stock person or as a salesperson uh, and 30 plus years later retire as a vice president, they've made a lot of money, they've raised a family, they've paid off a mortgage. They've built this great retirement for themselves. I got a call from Leslie Martin yesterday. Mm -hmm. I think she was trying to call you. But she called <laughs> she me was. by, by well, accident. Well, one number. of those Nordstrom yeah. guys. Uh, and, you know, here, here's Leslie Martin, who she didn't have an MBA. She didn't, you know, come to this business with uh, some great skill set that she was going to. But she did a, an outstanding job of being a leader and getting results and making customers happy and growing the business. And, you know, she can look back on her career and be super, super proud and her family super proud of her. And, and we have for our company, for our size of company, I bet we have way more of those kinds of stories than almost any other company that I'm aware of. Uh, and that's that's what gets me up in the morning. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think the customers are the center of everything we do. But what's most satisfying for me is being part of a team and even growing up, it's, you know, it's not. It's not that I had this huge passion for women's footwear, why, <laughs> why I went into it, but I loved being part of the team. And then being able to, even as an assistant manager, you start to have some responsibility. And you know, to your point, Jamie, of the satisfaction of believing in people and supporting them and seeing what they can do is super satisfying. And I think that's the one thing that is uh, that I'm most grateful for. Yeah, know? I mean, it's probably the lesson learned for all of us as a sum of all these experiences is that the measure of success is really your ability to be able to support and enable people to be successful. And I completely agree with you. I mean, that's a really satisfying part of the job. And it's a realization you come to that if you're going to be successful, it's not because you've got all the answers and you're doing all the stuff. It's you know how to surround yourself with people that are actually probably better than you at these things. And once you can kind of put your ego side on that one and let it happen, it's a great unlock. But And it's also just, again, super, super satisfying. Hey, look, I really appreciate you guys doing this and not mocking me through the whole thing. <laughs> you know, here's Pete in his office with some microphones set up and he's doing this podcast. But uh, we talk all the time anyway, but it's fun to kind of reminisce and talk about some of this stuff. So I appreciate you guys sharing some stories with me today. Always fun. Our pleasure. Have retail <laughs> stories. All right. Now we go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> you guys want to get, get lunch? Uh, yes.
You know, one of the things that I want to touch on with every episode is just some of the amazing customer stories that we have. And I got to say, we got a lot of them. And besides being kind of entertained and amused by them, because there's just some amazing things that happen, is how we use stuff like that to further our culture around service. And it kind of creates a what's possible and maybe can you outdo this kind of a spirit in the company. And one of the stories that came to mind that said, we have got to talk about this because it's just so incredible, is what I will call the diamond story. So I want to introduce you to Kenneth Ma. Now, Kenneth's worked for us for a long time. What is it, Kenneth, 26 years? Yes, yeah, started in 1996, Pete. And so Kenneth, who's a, dis- a rack district manager for us now, you could probably make a podcast of his different crazy stories he's dealt with. But the most amazing one was when he was a store manager in North Carolina. And what I'd like you to do, because you, you live this thing, is tell, like, what was the diamond story? What actually happened here? It all started with one of our loss prevention agents. So we've called it different things. Loss prevention, what else? It's asset Asset protection okay. is the, I guess, politically it, correct term now. <laughs> and so when I started, I think we just called it security. So for yeah. everyone listening, that that's kind of what that is. So I think the important thing to realize is that, you know, it wasn't a salesperson, it was security, right? Yeah. And he notices a customer on her hands and knees in our jewelry department. And then, you know, the first thing he's thinking is like, okay, what is this lady doing? So he, you know, kindly asked her, you know, miss, is there anything I can help you with? And he comes to find that this customer has lost the diamond in her engagement ring. Okay. Well, she thinks she's lost it at Nordstrom. So our employee is basically like, let me help you find it. And after a couple minutes, they don't find anything. So he, he does what most employees would do. And that's, okay, well, give me your name, your number. If we find it, we'll give you a call, right? So, you know, this lady is obviously still frantic, kind of hopeless at this point. So then she leaves. And, you know, what happens next is what makes this story so amazing to me. Our security employee, his name is Eric. In his mind, he's thinking like, I don't know if this lady really lost her diamond in our store. But he's like, you know what, is there a small chance that we might have vacuumed up the diamond? Let me just talk to our employees in housekeeping. So he approaches two employees. Um, Their names were uh, Bart and Tom. And it could have all fallen apart from there, right? I mean, Bart and Tom could have been like, okay, we got better things to do. There's no no way we're going to find this diamond. But Bart and Tom were like, you know what, let's give it a shot. So, you know, what's in vacuum cleaner bags, right? He like, what's dust made of like 85% like humans. Yeah, no, we don't need to get into that. I think you're, uh, (laughs) yes, whatever's (laughs) in there is something you don't really care to be sorting through. I get it. Correct. So Bart and Tom, along with Eric, proceed to cut open the vacuum cleaner bags from the previous day. And it's not like, I mean, we have a big store. It's not like we just have one vacuum. Like we have a ton of vacuum cleaners. (laughs) So how many vacuum cleaner bags these guys cut open? I never asked, but it was more than a handful. Let's put it that (laughs) way. They cut open the bags and literally sifted through all the debris with their fingers. And the most amazing thing about this story, Pete, was I did not know any of this happened. Eric walks into my office and he's like, hey, do you have a little box? And I was like, 
for what? Like, what do you need a box for? And then he says for this, and he pulls out the diamond out of his pocket. And this is, is, is a big diamond piece. <laughs> and I was like, where did you get that? And then he proceeds to tell me the story. And he says, so literally, I just need a little box because I don't want to give the customer like the diamond with my fingers. So I like I literally had no clue that this happened until the day of. You know, obviously, I remember this story, not all the details. I never knew that. And I think what's so incredible about that is you would anticipate that in most circumstances, particularly something that unusual, they would ask their boss, you, the store manager, like, what should I do? Or I'm thinking about doing this, that they took the initiative to do this stuff, to try to find a solution for a customer on something that might have happened is remarkable. I mean, it was it you that called the customer or who called the customer and said, hello, we have your diamond? It was Eric, the person that initially asked her if she from, needed From help loss me. prevention, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So what was her reaction like? Well, <laughs> According to Eric, she started crying over the phone. And then, you know, she came into the store. He gave her her diamond. I met her. And, you know, she obviously could not thank him enough. And what she said to me, her knowing that somebody cared enough to go through all that trouble, that's what touched her. Yeah. And I just found out, I didn't realize this, but that story somehow made it to video at one point or another here and is up like on YouTube. So if you type into YouTube Nordstrom Diamond Story, you're going to see this. And I think that's one of the amazing things about customer service. It's the best marketing tool we have, not because we talk about customer service, but the genuine acts of things that happen every day and the way that those stories get passed along and shared and how powerful that is. Yeah, that story to me really speaks to our company culture in empowering our folks. And when I think about it, you know, warms my heart. It, it's just a great feeling. Well, look, and I love it. You're really nice to uh, spend all the time and kind of share that story. It's one of my all-time favorites. And I learned some stuff today that I did not know. Again, I'm just, I'm, I'm super appreciative to you and everyone out there that does everything in their little way or big way every day. And it all adds up to something that, you know, really adds a lot of value and makes Nordstrom special for customers. So thanks so much, Kenneth. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Pete. Happy to be here and uh, really excited to be able to share the story. Okay. So today I'm actually walking across the street from my office at downtown Seattle store to our rack we're doing something that we're calling unstacking the rack. And you may ask, what the heck does that mean? Well, we're in this position, given the realities of global supply chain and what have you and COVID, where it's been difficult for us to process all the inbound freight coming in, all the merchandise. And so we're literally having people from kind of the corporate center, which include people like me, go to different rack locations and help process incoming merchandise. So I'm going to spend a few hours doing that today, and I'm really happy that I'm going to do it with my niece, Alex. Say hi, Alex. Hi. <laughs> so as we're walking over here, what I want to make sure people know is, so Alex is the lone fifth-generation Nordstrom working at Nordstrom. I get asked this all the time. Is there another generation coming up? And, and the fact is... My niece, Alex, who's 31 years old, has had different jobs, different places, but is now an assistant buyer here at Nordstrom. So, Alex, why don't you describe a little bit what you do? What do I do? So, everything from marketing, markdowns, reorders, 
bulking the order, swaps, RTVs, I don't know. <laughs> Sounds glamorous. Yeah, I mean, Really I think... exciting, I live in Excel. <laughs> <laughs> so when people think about being a buyer, it's kind of the dream of, oh, I want to be in retail, I want to be a buyer, because I think it'll just be so fun to pick out pretty clothes. But there's a lot of other stuff that goes with that that's not necessarily super glamorous. All right, so we're walking across the street here. It's a nice rainy day in Seattle, pretty typical. But we're coming up on the rack. I don't know exactly what they're gonna ask us to do, but it's nice to be attached to actually what we do, the real business, not just sitting at an office at a desk talking about the business. So we'll see what they have in store for us. And I'm, I'm glad you're with me, Alex. It'll be nice to have a, a buddy. Yeah, I'm excited. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Hi. So, okay, who's who's in charge here? Um, Isa, inventory manager. Okay, I'm Pete. I'll do the best I can, as much as I can while I'm here. I All promise. Right, sounds good. All right. I, can I won't let you, you back, down. Um, to the basket and we can unstack okay. the rack. Okay, unstack the rack. Let's do it. All right, show us what we need to go do here. All right, so go ahead and start opening the boxes. Now that I know how to do. You know, I, I used to work in the stock room. We all did. Yeah. I yeah. started when I was 13. I didn't know that. Yeah, started in shoes and HR used to get mad because I wasn't really supposed to do that. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on this. You weren't supposed to do what, work? Yeah. You were yeah. too young? But dad kept saying it was okay. Yeah, well I had the same thing. When I first was working as a teenager, like 12 to 16 or 15, my dad just paid me out of his pocket. So that probably wasn't a legal situation, but that's, that's how it happened back then. So you had your own version of that too? Yeah. All right, what do we got here? It looks like I'm getting to hang underwear, Alex. Oh, underwear. <laughs> yeah, this is how I wanted to spend my day, hanging underwear with my uncle. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Jamie told me that when he was doing this, he's done it a few times, he was hanging women's underwear as well. So it seems like, I don't know if that's on purpose, that's the gig we're getting, but uh, <laughs> it's what we're doing. Okay, so Alex, I kind of obviously know what my experience was being a Nordstrom working here and stuff. And have you viewed that at all as kind of like a burden or, I mean, how's it been for you being a Nordstrom and doing the job you do? Wow, all right. What's it like? Well, I think probably one of the hardest things is to have people really understand my character. And so my biggest fear or insecurity is if people were to judge and make assumptions. Like what? To, like when you, assumptions of what? Just of just anything? Just like my character. And okay. So I just have to work hard and remember the values that my family's taught me. And I don't feel any pressure from my family. I've, if anything, I'm like annoyed. My family told me so many times, don't work at the store. <laughs> Who told you that? Did I tell you that? No, but I mean, dad would be like, only work here if you really love it. Like the only reason why it worked for us when he was referencing you and Eric is because you guys really loved it. And I think that's true. And it was great to see growing up how much you guys loved it and to have that example of like, find something you're really passionate about. And so I don't feel pressure at all from you guys. It's more like pressure on myself to make sure that I'm working as hard as I can and making sure I'm representing my family. But I am very happy we are in the stock room because especially <laughs> now, no, but seriously, like right now we're virtual. I live in Excel. Probably a lot of the teams, whether you're on the buying side or the finance side, you're really in the weeds. And with COVID, it's hard to be strategic. It feels like we're always on defense and really just heads down. And so it's nice to like take a moment and 
not be at your desk and remember why we're all doing this. Like it's for the customer. And when you're here and looking at product and seeing what's working or where there's opportunities, it's like grandpa, uh, grandpa, literally every time I see him and talk about work, he's like, well, have you walked the floor? I'm like, yes, <laughs> but if I don't do it daily, it's not enough for him. But you know, he always says like the people in the store are the most important employees and to try to connect with them more. And I agree. I think it's, how does this feel? How does the customer feel in it? What is that reaction? And you definitely have to be in person to get the other side. Well, you're, you're not the only person that hears that. He still tells Eric and I all the time that we should be on the floor more. Now, look, we're not getting a lot of that as we're hanging up stuff in the back room, but it does feel good to be connected to actually what our business is. And what our business is, is not sitting at a desk behind a computer screen. Our business is selling stuff to customers and helping customers. And that's happening here, you know, in this store. Sorry, I'm reaching over to get this box. All right, so Bouts, what do we do on these ones where there's two different colors on one hanger? <laughs> you just put it in by size and hope for the put best? Put it in by size, but we can ask if they have other hangers. Oh, I guess I have to put them on hangers, yeah, okay. Uh, do I look like I need some help? No, no. <laughs> I, I probably do. Well, that's the show. Hopefully, we've given you a little glimpse into who we are, what we do, and why we do it. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash Podcast where you can listen to episodes, view upcoming guests, and learn about how you can get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service, or even bad service, or maybe you want to come clean about that horrible return you made in 1983 and you still feel guilty about it, whatever it is, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you might just hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And most importantly, make sure to tune in next time to hear my conversation with a longtime friend and fellow music enthusiast, CEO of Sub Pop Records, Megan Jasper. Sub Pop was a really tiny company. We knew something special was happening, but it seemed like something special is happening for Nirvana. And still behind the scenes, we didn't know if we'd be able to pay rent. We usually couldn't. But there's something about that savage, creative energy and space that's exciting. And none of us wanted to step away from it, even on a really bad day. It's a super fun conversation, and really especially for me personally, because I'm a big music fan. You're going to learn a lot more about the rock world of the 80s, 90s, and beyond, and how the whole grunge thing came to be. You're not going to want to miss it.